So uh, my name is Max Trapovsky. I uh, run a boutique uh, commercial real estate brokerage. We help tenants uh, around the country with their occupied office space. Um, as you mentioned, to ensure that their office space both reflects and supports their company culture. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I started a panel series and a podcast called The Future of Work, because when the pandemic happened, my clients called me and they were like, what is going on? Right? Like, what do we do? And I think the fact is nobody knew what was going on and everybody was just making things up as they went along, right? Because information was coming at us fast and furious. And I think to an extent, we're all still kind of making it up as we go along. And so what I wanted to do was to get some really interesting people to talk about their perspectives. And so the future of work explores our relationship with work and the perspectives on that relationship. So from landlords to tenants, to designers, to investors and more. And so we've had CEOs of companies like Relativity, Sterling Bay, uh, Cameo talk about uh, how they are approaching uh, how we work, where we work, and why we work. And so uh, it's it's a podcast as well as a live panel series. So if you search for Future of Work, you can get it on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, wherever you get your podcast on. Today's panel is all about development, and it's kind of a tale of verticals and a tale of uh, yes, but. So office demand is down, yes, but. Fulton Market, for example, is on fire with asking rates 50% higher than uh, those in the loop and more absorption than nearly all the other markets combined, despite having 2 million square feet of office space delivered so far this year. At the same time, the housing market, the rental market, is on fire with historically low vacancies and ever-increasing rents, 30% in 2021 alone. Yes, but there are 5,500 units uh, scheduled for completion in 2023, likely driving down rents. And mortgage rates, as you probably saw this morning, are now close to 7%, which uh, makes it a little tougher to buy. Some apartment buildings are trading at record prices per unit, yes. But some apartment building deals are being retraded, like the Alta Roosevelt, which saw a prior deal collapse, only to have another buyer step up at a $10 million discount. And all of this is against the backdrop of stubbornly high inflation. I'm sure you probably saw today's inflation report and the wonderful effects it had on the stock market. And you add to that the backdrop of continuously increasing interest rates. I think the 75 basis point increase in November is all but certain. And still a historically low unemployment rate. I think it's safe to say it's going to be quite a ride. So grab the popcorn if you can still afford it, and enjoy the show. And the stars of today's show, why don't you guys come on up? Brian Brodeur, VP of Development with Ani Group. Brian oversees the development. Yeah, give him a hand, give him a hand. I'll have your song ready next time you come out. Brian oversees the development pipeline for Chicago area projects from identifying new opportunities, managing staff, and overseeing project delivery to end users. Over the last six years, Brian has delivered over 1,800 residential units in Chicago. Not personally, of course, but as part of the organization. Sheila Carroll, creative director with Nick Point Ventures. 
where she oversees new design and construction, asset management, marketing, and leasing. Nick Point's largest development is The Fields, a 1.5 million square foot development on Chicago's northwest side that includes The Fields Studios, Chicago's first purpose-built sound stages. And last but not least, Tim Moran, partner design and construction with Condor Partners. Tim oversees all design and construction management activities for Condor's projects in office, senior living, hospitality, multifamily, and retail. Welcome. So, uh, you are all working on different types of projects. Why don't you tell us a little bit about a couple of projects that you're excited about right now? Let's start with you, Brent. So, we, Ani is a um, vertically integrated um, owner, developer, and general contractor, and we've been active in Chicago for the last 10 years. Um, as Max said, we've primarily delivered residential units, but we've got a bunch of commercial stuff coming online. <coughs> so probably our most exciting office deal right now is actually in the loop. Uh, it's 225 Randolph, the old uh, AT&T headquarters. So we're very hopeful that the Google Move downtown um, will create a bit more demand for a Class L building, uh, uh, class, class L landmark building with Class A uh, brand new finishes and amenities and here in the loop. And then we're also working on two large master plan sites on the Tippecoose Island and right across from the Valley's development. So that's all together about 5,500 residential units, office and hotel. Um, obviously that will take quite a bit of time to develop. Sorry. Um, and I think you mentioned it in my bio, but probably our biggest project right now that's going into development is the studios project at the Fields. So the Fields itself is a 1.5 million square foot warehouse, and the studios will be developed on land on either side. Um, so that also comes with a lot of upgrades to the main warehouse that will be retail, commercial, as well as amenities um, for the studios themselves. And then the studios are going to be about 300,000 square, square feet of studios and support space. So um, we have three projects that are kind of hot right now. The first one, we're, we just had our year anniversary of opening Truly Evanston, which is a senior living facility um, right in downtown Evanston. It has 180 units, memory care, independent living, and assisted living. Um, that started, that broke ground the week before the pandemic started. So literally the Friday before Tom Hanks got COVID and the NBA shut down and the whole world started spiraling out of control. Um, so we're happy that there's residents in there. We're about 50% leased right now after the first year, which is great. Um, the second one, we have Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, leased 100,000 square foot from us in Mural, Mural Park in Pilsen, which is a project of ours. And they'll be moving in next month, which is really exciting to get 450 jobs to the neighborhood of Pilsen. Um, so you'll have more of a 24 seven neighborhood there where people can live and work and play in the same neighborhood. And then we just got our, uh, construction foundation permit, uh, last week on a, uh, 12 story hotel in, in old town, um, that has 203 units and restaurant on the first and second floor and a rooftop bar. So there's a nice like mix of stuff that we're diving into at the moment. I love how we use Tom Hanks getting COVID as a milestone. It was that Wednesday night. It was that. <laughs> I remember being on Twitter and I was like, is the NBA shutting down? Like, oh, Tom Hanks also has COVID. And then. And that's when you were like, we're done. That's yeah, exactly when the down. pandemic started for me. <laughs> so, uh, so I know some of you have had to pivot from some of your, you know, previous asset classes or diversify into new developments as a result of the pandemic. So talk about how your current developments differ from your pre-pandemic developments, whether asset class or building features or things like that? 
timing. I mean, the hotel was supposed to break ground in, in May of 2020, and now we're, we're, you know, now we're breaking ground in December. Um, so that's a big thing. The craziest thing was everything ebbed and flowed, I feel like. I don't know about you guys, but like it was panic. It was HVAC systems. It was looking to, you know, blue lights that eliminate viruses and all this stuff. And now we're just back to building normal because construction costs are so high. And yeah, here we are. So. Yeah, and we, we pivoted our development plan completely because of we kind of halted retail totally um, when the pandemic hit first because that was we were looking for kind of like smaller maker shops and beer production and things like that and those people were not signing leases in the middle of a pandemic and so then we looked at the land on either side that we had and we initially started with sports essentially looking at like indoor soccer indoor baseball american ninja gyms and things like that and we ran with that until then we didn't know when those were even going to open again and so then we pivoted to the film studios and so it was it was about like running parallel paths of which industry was going to bounce back fastest we had an interesting opportunity when we were middle of the pandemic we delivered two brand new residential buildings downtown um so needless to say we were quite nervous to see what happens Somehow, both buildings ended up leasing up basically in six months and nine months at higher than before, right? I think part of it was because everyone was stuck inside their apartment for, you know, a year, year and a half with no outdoor space, you know, no amenities. And then we came up with two brand new buildings with every unit has a balcony. Things like small details like that that always end up getting VE'd off a project. By keeping some of those in those, I think it made us more competitive. Um, the other thing I think we're kind of bucking the trend on is we are pushing our units smaller and smaller and smaller, um, but they're well designed. So I think that, you know, is more New York size. I think you're going to see more New York sized and San Francisco sized apartments and more New York and San Francisco sized rents here, just based on construction costs um, just in the market itself. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting about um, the amenities in residential buildings. So I just had Andy Glor from Sterling Bay on the podcast and he talked about amenitization of office buildings. And so to sort of translate that into residential, obviously tenants find a lot of value in that, whether they're office or residential tenants, because they want those amenities. And we're, I mean, one of our other projects, we're looking at doing a three-story climbing wall um, in one of the office buildings, which, okay, we've done it in a resi building, why not put it in office? So Amazing. you gotta get more creative because I think if you hit what you said earlier, to get people back in work, they don't physically necessarily have to be there but why do you want to go? Why do you want to go interact with your coworkers? Why do you want to, it's not just free lunch and, you know, you know, beer on tap because that you know, gets a little old. So what are more interesting things can you do, especially in the building, like in the loops where you don't necessarily have all of the other amenities you have maybe in Fulton market. You don't have the rock climbing gym down the street. You don't have as many restaurants and things like that. So I think a lot of them, a lot of buildings are looking, well, if it's not there in the neighborhood, it's not, you know, Loop's not super active all the time. What can we do in our building to make it work? So the building becomes a mini neighborhood itself. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, the everybody's been trying to sort of predict where demand is going. And I think it's obviously really different between asset classes. But where do you see, and, you know, pick a class, retail, office, hotel, um, whatever the case may be, where do you see demand going in the next, you know, three, five, seven years. We won't, we won't hold you to this, by the way, just so you know. I mean, I think the Class A office is always going to do well in Fulton Market and some other neighborhoods. Um, 
I think residential <laughs> continue to grow. The and I think hotel is kind of my opinion of hotel in Chicago is kind of capped out. Uh, we recently bought the Ace Hotel in Fulton Market, rebranded it to the Emily, our own internal brand, um, back in January. And people questioned our buy because I talked to a couple of our hotel groups and they said they'd rather own a hotel in Minneapolis than Chicago because the average daily room rate is higher annually in Minneapolis than it's in Chicago. Chicago is a boomer bust town for hotel. So I just don't know, especially if we're going to lose more conferences and things like that at McCormick Place, how much more hotel can support. Can I counter that hotel thing since I have a Please. hotel that's breaking ground soon? Well, I own a hotel down the street from here already, so it can't totally die. It's, you know, for, for us, it's, it's creating a unique experience in a unique hotel because so many times the Excel spreadsheet makes the math work, but you have then four hotels that have four banks that finance these buildings that because the Excel spreadsheet works for everyone, and then when they're all built and they're all operating, they don't work for everyone. Um, so, like, our our our, uh, our hotel in Old Town is a unique thing. Like, I think a lot of people locally visit Old Town and have a good time and have a night out, but people from out of town, they go out in River North, or they go out in Fulton Market, and they don't even know Old Town. They don't even know that you're, you know, half a mile away from the lakefront and those things. And so I think it's just getting smarter. I think things are as things get more competitive, as you were mentioning, like, you just need to be smarter and more creative as to what you're delivering and, and, and creating a unique experience for people instead of just the same old thing over and over again. Well, I think, well, because we also have extended stay and nightly hotel in some of our residential buildings. Yeah. People like staying in neighborhoods. So yeah. I think you're right, like a small neighborhood hotel might work, but, you know, as another 300-unit hotel tower downtown, yeah, maybe not. Um, but the other thing, the way hotels work is food and beverage. I mean, that's where, that's where the money's made. So you have yeah. to have a successful food and beverage program. Once again, amenities that you're offering with the hotel, not just a yeah. decent hotel room. I was at the Hoxton last night and had dinner at Sarah and it was packed. Yeah. And that hotel would have been dead and not had the energy and not had the vibrancy of the, the neighborhood. If that, if that restaurant wasn't awesome to drive people there and to turn people through the neighborhood. So. We're going to get real for a minute here and talk about challenges and then, uh, and then we'll come back to a positive note, but let's, let's just call a spade a spade here. So there's a lot of issues that developers are facing. So, uh, let's talk about the labor shortage, huge challenge right now. How are you dealing with that? Well, I'm still trying to hire a new admin for about three months now and can't find anyone. So that's a problem. Um, for our hourly hospitality staff, we're actually been off. We at one point we're offering fifteen hundred dollars signing bonuses for hourly employees, five hundred dollars up front, five hundred dollars after like ninety days, and five hundred at like you know one hundred and eighty or whatever. So incentivizing, but we still couldn't get people. I mean, the later opens are our restaurants, so um, those staff we're having trouble with. But in terms of actual construction labor and stuff like that for our subs, we're not seeing those shortages as much for some reason. So they're still charging more. Though. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. We've, we've run into a couple of things with, like we're we're trying to like walk that line of cost and speed, obviously. And so one of the things that we asked when we were putting our GMP together for the studios was, can we get a separate line item for Saturday work or like double crews for some of the key trades? And some of the subs wouldn't offer it. Because they were like, we don't have we don't have double crews for you to like put up precast necessarily because everyone's putting up precast walls everywhere. So, and I think that's we also found in terms of our like raw materials a lot of issues with 
securing, like kind of combating the Amazon purchasing of all of the steel and the precast walls to have enough people to make concrete walls and steel trusses. They, their timelines are kind of fixed because they can't speed it up because they don't have enough people in the warehouse. Yeah, we're in a bad economy where everyone's still building, so resources are just stretched. Yeah. Well, and I think what's happening in Florida is not going to make it any better for the rest of us because now all the resources that could go other places in the country are going to go down there to rebuild those buildings. Yeah. Uh, what about, so you mentioned, you mentioned construction costs. Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of, kind of a nightmare, right? <laughs> like 20%, 30% year over year subs are not standing by their bids for more than, you know, a really short amount of time. And it, I, I heard in the, in the lowest, uh, in the darkest days of the pandemic, it was like 24, 48 hours. Now, you know, it's probably a little bit longer, but how are you, what are you doing about the, not that there's anything you can do, but how are you sort of adapting given the increased construction costs? I mean, we're in this most recent pricing exercise, we, I mean, we're trying to add as much contingency as possible, but the contingency that we're trying to add is like an informed escalation contingency. So it's about working with the subs ahead of time to say like, which of your products do you see potentially having the prices raising, which of the components here and there and trying to estimate what that might be. So like we, in addition to, owner contingency, contractor contingency, and all of that, we also now have an escalation and acceleration bucket in there, something that can, if we can pay a little bit more to make something faster, we're going to do it, but also something to, it's like, we also just ordered all of our roofing, we haven't even closed our loan yet, and all of our roofing materials are ordered and being stored because they said it was going to be a 15% raise come November. So. Then you have the carry costs of the... Yeah, we're just holding it. It's less than the delay cost. It's less than the delay. So yeah. you, have to, you have to balance that. And we have, we're lucky enough to have a warehouse, essentially. Um, we're going to probably tap it out. But I think it's about figuring out where the biggest risks are, and it changes month to month, because it was lumber and steel, then it was concrete. It's a lot of electrical equipment now. So, yeah. yeah, that's the hard thing. We get in front of the zoning committee and we show them a building a year ago. <laughs> and then it takes a year to get the pricing for something. And in that time, steel's gone up, then steel's leveled off, then wood has gone up, and then, then there's a labor shortage on drywall guys. And it, it's if it's high and it's across the board and it's stable, it's bad news, great, but you you can then have a plan around it right. it's the risk of everything's jumping around in different directions and doesn't make sense and hasn't historically ever happened before we've had certain trades go up together like for instance steel and the cost of beef have been correlated like for the last hundred years when one goes up the other goes up because of whatever reason and now they're like swimming against each other if you look at them and it's like economists look at them and are like oh i just don't know why that's happening and it'll take five years for my PhD student to figure it out. I, all I know is I learned something new today. That's, that's good. I know that. Do you get the sense that there is a limit to how much of those costs you can pass on to the end user, whether it's office or, you know, rentals? I think we're there. You talk to, we're probably a little atypical because we're owner, developer, and general contractor all in one. So as we're designing the building from the very, we know what we want to build. We know the products we're going to put in there. But Talk to plenty of other developers in town where their pricing is coming in 20, 30, 40% higher. The rents and rents are the same. So they can't afford to build here. Right. So they're going to, so now then they're going to go to other markets, spend their money in a different market, 
build there. And but then I joke, I'm like, well, your construction there is so crappy because it's not union and a bunch of other reasons that you're going to end up spending the same amount of money in the way in the end for construction to fix the stuff you should just build here. So it, it's it's a balance, but at a certain point, you know, TI costs are TI costs, and you know, if costs don't come down, we're not going to be able to you know build our way out of it like we have before. So. When you go on Hotels.com, it never tells you how expensive the hotel was to build. No. It just says the room rate for that night, and you're comparing it against the other room rates. Yeah. That's true. Uh, what about um, the increase in the cost of capital? And with, with rates getting higher and higher, it's, I would assume, tougher to finance some of this stuff, right? You're going to have fewer banks stepping up to, to do it. So, so how are you sort of dealing with that? I've in the last month, I've never gotten so many calls of other people in Chicago and other cities basically saying, I have a shovel ready project, I can't find capital. Will you guys JV? Yeah. Our answer is no. So we just don't JV. They then call back the next day and they're like, Oh, would you ever buy it from us? And my answer now is we're gonna wait to see what happens in the next six to nine months. So it's just everyone's gonna be delayed. If you're not under construction, you don't have financing, you don't have a construction loan lined up, I don't know how it's gonna happen in the next, you know, less than a year. Yeah. Long term, I yeah. think we're fine, but yeah. I mean, we're hoping to close a loan really soon. So I can tell you that it's like a—I mean, it's a balancing act of like watching the news and figuring out if you're going to have a bad call with the lender, figuring out where it's going to go. Like we've been—I mean, it's been over a year that we've been working with getting it financed. So we're the world's changed a lot in the last year. Um, but I think it's also about finding the right lenders who see the possibility and understanding that. I mean, they also, like, they can hike the rate, rates up on us, and it just means we have to deliver faster. Um, and so, like, building their confidence and our ability to do that, and then knowing that we're going to take a little bit of a hit on the interest, but if we believe in our development plan, that's why we're kind of charging ahead with them. That's a double problem, because your construction loan is borrowing 20% more than you were two years ago, because yeah. the construction cost is up, yeah. and now you're paying double the interest yeah. on the 20% more. You start doing the math on that, and it's... Doesn't look good in an Excel spreadsheet. I'm glad that you guys are so optimistic. I mean, we're talking about all these problems. <laughs> you just you have a smile on your face. It's great. Uh, so, Brian, you mentioned you're going to have you know over 5,000 units delivered up. You know, in the next what year? A couple of years? That's like 20 years. So, I mean, that's that's 11 towers. I mean, yeah, it's, we got some time. So, so when no you're, are you concerned at all with all of the projects that you have on the books? about delivering into an entirely different market in terms of supply and demand dynamics? Yes and no. I think if you are, there's always a core group of either office or residential tenants who want to live in or rent the nicest, newest building. So as long as you have the nicest, newest building in the best location, likelihood you're going to be fine. It's the B class stuff. It's the stuff that was delivered last cycle that I think is going to have trouble. Um, we're delivering a project this spring up in on Halstead, kind of decided to set a Fulton market. And the apartment building next door to it, I'm not going to say we're going to clean it out, but you know, similar rents and you can move into a brand new unit right next door and we're going to pay for your moving. We're probably going to get some tenants to come over. Um, I also think if you look at, you know, as the city likes to project, oh, we have all these, you know, building, you know, DPD, we've approved all these plans, all these units are approved. Well, until they actually break ground, I don't believe it. So there's so many projects out there that are, oh, this is approved for this many units in this project or this project. But if you can't get financing, I think unless it's under construction, it doesn't count. 
And even then, you've, we've seen plenty of them, you know, get their foundation started and just descend. So, yeah, hopefully we don't end up with what happened last cycle with, you know, 111 Wacker and things like that, but you never know. I remember that. Um, supply chain challenges. We talked a little bit about, you know, buying roofing way in advance. Um, how are you... How are you dealing with that? What are you doing to accommodate for all these supply chain issues? In Evanston, we, we, we started early enough, but towards the back end of the project, we ended up leasing warehouse space up there and all our doors, all our door hardware, all our IT equipment, all our appliances, we delivered early and just had them sitting in the warehouse so that we knew we had them. So you can set expectations a little farther out. You know, we knew instead of knowing on the last day of the month that we weren't going to have the door hardware when it was supposed to be here next week, we knew 90 days out that we're now tracking the door hardware being a week late and had a little bit more wiggle room. There's no other way to do it. you you got to have a longer runway on some of this stuff. And I think it's finding, like, we've been vetting different approaches with different trades. So, like, we're doing custom-built switchgear instead of like from the big house because they're able to get the parts and pieces faster than the other ones. And so it's, it's vetting out solutions like that. Our precast is a group out of Iowa. Um, so we took like a really nice road trip to go look at a concrete factory um, to vet that out. But like rather than, so we're looking regionally for a lot of our solutions and vetting out smaller groups. And we started the conversations really early so that we could have those those tests and mock-ups and things like that to be able to feel comfortable with them. Um, and I think that's one of the only reasons that we've been able to potentially keep our timeline somewhat on the tracks. We've been looking to try to buy as much as we can out of North America, just because the ports are, for the longest time the ports were the biggest problem. Yeah. Um, but you'd rather deal with, you know, shipping delays out of Texas or, you know, Canada than Italy or China. So. You know, you pick them, you, if you can get it for similar pricing and a, and a good product, you buy it closer. So hopefully that will also help, you know, American manufacturing and other, you know, there's, if more people did it, I think there would be long-term better growth and sustainability for the building trades and supply stuff in, in, in the United States. Yeah, I could, I could probably imagine, you know, there's probably, there were probably some construction materials on the Ever Given that got stuck in the Panama Canal. That probably slowed a yeah, couple of projects too, down. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just want to touch on return to the office a little bit. I know it, it impacts, uh, you know, some of you more than others, but how is this sort of shift to hybrid work impacting uh, your projects? And it could be, you know, demand, occupancy, design changes, amenities, you know, take your pick. So we we don't have, like, we're not the end user of the office space, right? So we have a shell and then we lease it out to different companies. And um, so, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield's 100,000 square foot is a dense office building. Um, it, it looks, if you showed the floor plans of against any, you know, office space six years ago, it looks the same. I think office and I think retail also were already changing before the pandemic and the pandemic just kind of was a catalyst to accelerate them a little bit. Um, and we're not like quite out of figuring out like what that next thing is. I mean, even something as simple as electrical outlets, like you used to have like two electrical outlets at your desk, one for your monitor and one for your computer, right? Well, now you have two monitors, you have your CPU, you have your, your iPad, maybe you have your cell phone. Now all of a sudden, like every desk has eight, you know, that's a small change, but construction cost wise, 
you know, the electrical loads and the panels and the infrastructure to have that much, to have double the power you used to have or quadruple the outlets in some cases. There's small stuff like that that's trickling up. Um, but it'll be interesting. I mean, my wife works for a company and she goes in one or two days a week and doesn't go in five days a week anymore. You know, and that trickles down to she's never there on Monday and Friday. And I've noticed Monday and Friday in River North are really quiet. You can walk right up to Chipotle and just order. There's no line on Mondays and Fridays. But, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, there's in the merchandise market, the line is out the door at Pop Valley. So some of it's back, some of it isn't, from what I've noticed. I think we, we were seeing that it's going to be the companies that are potentially looking for that hybrid, like, satellite thing. Like, we're in the neighborhoods. We're not in West Loop or downtown. So I think that there is, I mean, your Blue Cross Blue Shield is a similar, they yeah. toured our building for that too. Like they were looking to be closer to where their employee population would be living. And so I think that there is a benefit for some of the like non-centralized office in that capacity. And then I also think it's the the product that people are going to be looking for is, is changing. The last two deals that we didn't get went to abandoned targets. Like we lost two office deals to two different like old targets that they were putting call centers in. And so I think there's also going to be a shift in that where there's like retail that's getting converted into office that'll be in different areas that is a wider open space where they can put more amenities in. I feel like there's there's going to be a shift in that regard. And we've seen we've seen some clients heading that way. I, I tend to agree. I think it's it's going to be more mixing of the asset classes you know we have another project where we've got 70,000 square feet of office that's been sitting there for three years now we finally are getting some leasing activity on it um, up in old town uh, but also if you look at like what they're doing in suburban malls they're you know they're adding office they're adding a hotel they're adding i mean i don't want to live there but other people do so uh you don't live in old sears <laughs> at one point i worked for a mall company so i think yeah. i mean like my hell to wake up looking at a mall parking lot but um but no, I, I think it's, you know, the mixing of different, you know, different asset classes. Uh, but at the same time, there has to be a cultural shift where I think hybrid's here to stay. But I don't think younger workers necessarily understand that you can have a job, but you won't have a career unless you know people. And if you don't go into the office at least part of the time, I don't know how you make connections to get ahead. And I think that's lost on a lot of younger younger i'm not old but a little younger than me that didn't experience that we were just talking about that because Teresa sheila and i worked together and her friends but never worked on a project together but Only we knew each we other mm-hmm. yeah. we knew each other in the exactly. office we talked to each other we went on to lunch together and all that stuff but it doesn't happen when you're working from right. five days a week exactly and also when the layoffs come, who are you going to lay off? People you've never met only on Zoom or the people you see twice a week? Yeah. So maybe everyone should go back to the office. But. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that honestly is one of the biggest challenges when you have a hybrid workforce is you have this two-class system. You have the people that come into the office and are just seen more often than you have the people that work from home and they're just not going to get as many you know, opportunities for better or for worse. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about amenities. And again, this could be across office, residential, um, whatever you want. What amenities are you seeing your users, um, you know, value the most or get really excited about the most? Parking. Yeah. <laughs> I was say the parking, and I feel there's like a lot there's of a lot of there's a lot of verbal demand for fitness centers, but I'm not. 
sold that's a, that's a tales that time. people yeah. are using them and so because we had a lease they came and they have access to we have lofts in our building and they have a fitness center and so our first tenant we gave them that and we said when the second tenant comes we'll build it out we're just not going to build out a fitness center preemptively and they were like well when 100 people need to use it every day like you'll then you'll build it out for us and it's been a year and a half and so we're like we will build it out when when like the need is there but we know how many people are like badging in and so I feel like that although I do feel like food potential like adjacency to food so if you don't have it in your building at least in the neighborhood um, like we have a grocery store in our building so that is an immediate draw parking and grocery so from residential side and I think it goes over to office side as well as we noticed two things in the pandemic everyone got a car and a dog so like our projects at the city took us down super low on you know parking ratios we're now renting spots across the street in commercial garages for our tenants okay that's a problem and then everyone else has a dog so now you have these buildings that we just did dog runs and dog washes but now we have dog lounges so you can go inside and hang out with your friends and neighbors with their dogs and now the question is as we're doing these office buildings it's like we're talking to the brokerage team and like all right should we even program dog stuff in the beginning and then they're like, no, wait till they ask for it. I'm like, they're going to come for it. So, you know, maybe if people are home with their dog all the day, I'll, then they want to go back to the office, they bring their dog and they're happy. They just need somewhere to park, I guess. So, it's <laughs> a problem. Uh, and then dog, dogs in the cars, you get the seeds, you get everything you need for them. Yeah, so to accommodate. Um, okay, I, I do want to ask, uh, I do want to ask this. I'm curious on uh, your perspective on what do you think the office is going to look like five years from now. So I think we're going to lose the open office floor plan again with everyone on Zoom calls. And I mean, it's really distracting when I'm on a Zoom call with someone that's in an open office and I can hear both sides of the people and people are walking past. I mean, you, you sort of need a little bit of privacy and maybe technology, audio and stuff will pick up on some of that and make it a little bit more streamlined. But I think we're going to lose more of the more of the open office. And I think it's just going to be more flexible space. And I think you might not work necessarily like we belong to the same gym. I don't know if you've gone, been to the co-working space lately. There, it's packed like all the time. Like people are in the office on in the morning and then they come over and work out at lunch and then they hang out there and take a couple calls for two hours and then they go back to the office or then they go home or whatever. And so I think having more flexible workspaces as your office or more satellite things, maybe your company has a location in the south suburbs, the west suburbs, the north suburbs, and downtown, and not necessarily a centralized thing. Yeah, I think it's going to be the, like, really efficient ways to meet. Like, I think what you're saying, like, what's actually drawing you to the office, and if it's being with other people and meeting with them, I think it's, and being able to have that be seamless with the people who are maybe not there, I think that's going to be a critical part of it. I think we were already heading in that direction, but I think there's probably still a lot of room to grow in terms of the flexibility of what those spaces look like. I, I kind of agree, but I also think it's, it's going to be industry specific because, yeah, you know, lawyers are always going to need their offices, like, and it depends who you are. I mean, you've talked to a lot of firms and companies. You don't have an assigned desk. You just kind of just sign up for a desk every day. If I was, that was me, that would be annoying. Like, it, I don't know. I think we're still going to have to figure it out. I, I don't think the demand for office space is going to go away. I don't think it's going to shrink. Um, what's going to have to happen is, as you build, like you said earlier, you build a new Class A trophy office. What happens to the old building? And some of the old, old buildings, yeah, those can go resi. They can go hotel. But some of the 1980 office buildings in the loop, I don't know what you do with them. 
Some of it might be cultural too. Like the firm we used to work for, everyone had tchotchkes on their desk and everyone curated them in a way that made like their desk interesting to themselves. And if you're remote, if you're just, if you're just hoteling everywhere, you don't have your stuff. You don't have your, your, your Ted Lasso coffee mug because you like Ted Lasso, you know what I mean? And so that sort of stuff, like it sort of strips the personality. So then it's an organizational decision of like, do you want your employees to have personality in the workplace or are you just coming and going? I think the first thing I'm going to do after I leave is buy a Ted Lasso coffee mug. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how I didn't think about that. Um, the, uh, you know, I think I, what I'm finding through some of the guests that I've had on my show is the, the office is not going to go away, but the role of the office is going to change, right? So yeah. if somebody wants to do heads down work, they're not going to endure a commute to go do heads down work. Like they're going to come into the office to help their career, but they're also going to come into the office to build relationships and to um, collaborate in real time, right? Like in in actuality, if you are closer with your coworkers, it reduces the attrition rate for the company because people want to help their friends succeed. They want to help their friends get better and productivity actually does go up uh, that way. So, um, so it is kind of interesting. Um, I, I'd like to, um, uh, I want to go deep for a second and talk about some self-reflection. So what lessons, this is open-ended, but we can, we can keep it to business. What lessons so have, couch we can lay down on? Yeah, 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 yeah. If we can get a couch, that'd be great. Um, have you learned in the last few years when it comes to, um, your developments? I mean, I think, I think probably one of my, cause I, I didn't enter development until the month before COVID hit. So I was, which was a really great time. It was just 2020 was just a full anxiety attack the whole time. So, but yeah, so I was on the architecture side and then I was on workplace strategy before that and entering development. I think one of the biggest lessons for me was learning to be more flexible and patient. Like, I think that for all of the other, like for the last three years at CBRE, like there, there were solutions. Like we were looking at data and we were finding solutions. And I think that nothing is that clear cut with the development. And a lot of it is making these, like mitigating your risk, but also being the ones that are confident enough to take those risks at the same time. And so being able to kind of toe that line, um, I learned a lot from my team where I just was like, well, this is it. And then they were like, well, we need, we need to think about a bunch of other things with it. So I think learning to kind of have like seven parallel paths going at the same time, because you never quite know what's going to hit or what's going to roadblock any of them um, and having the patience to wait to see how that shakes out. I would take contingency plans in a similar vein, because um, you think you're going to do this way and it's just, it, just in case it doesn't work out, we're going to have three other plans over here going at the same place. Um, I've also learned to raise your hand and not complain, but the squeaky wheel does get the grease. So if you're having issues, you know, and I tell my team all the time, I'm like, pick up the phone, don't send an email. Like, it's one of those yeah. things that, like, have an in-person meeting. Like, I know that's crazy, but have an in-person meeting, actually talk about stuff, because when everyone's on Zoom meetings, you're doing six other things. You're texting, you're on Instagram, whatever you're doing, you're not paying attention. Yeah. So have an in-person meeting and actually talk about the issue. Um, and I think look for other uh, other areas, like development you know, area, like, yes, we're a developer here to make money. But if we have community partners who also want to see the development project, it's not just us you know, raising your hand at the city saying we have a problem. Then we have a community group. We have neighbors. We have other businesses who want the same things we want. When it's coming from not just you, the person making the money on the project, 
you know, you have a better chance of success. Yeah, I think over-communication is a huge thing just because when you're not sitting next to someone, it can be hard. And then the other thing was setting boundaries for myself and for the people I worked with. So I wanted to work nine to five. I like dropping my kid off at school at 8.30. I don't like taking a call at 8.30. And so, but the flip side of that is I had to make sure at, at nine o'clock I was available, you know, and because the workday kind of bled. You were getting emails at seven. You were getting emails at seven at night. People were home. People were cooking dinner and then sending a couple more emails out. And so it was all about like, how do you work? Where are your boundaries at? But then you had an onus on yourself to be available during those times of the boundaries you set. Totally. Say no. You can say no to things yeah, exactly. at work and it's okay. Like I've, I never before the pandemic did I hear anybody talk about their status on teams and why that matters. Like, am I red, am I yellow, yeah, am I green? Yeah. Um, so if, uh, are we good on time? Yeah. Uh, if you could go back to March of 2020, March 1st of 2020, and you had five minutes with yourself, what would you say? Buy a shit ton of Zoom stock? Yeah. No. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. Correct. <laughs> and then dump it six months later. Yes, also correct. <laughs> and then retire. Yeah. Zoom and crypto. Zoom and crypto. Yeah. Do yeah. that and then get me done. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, 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 uh, no, I think that was, that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> yeah, I think our, I think we, I think we hesitated a little bit before we got moving on some things because we were like trying to see how things were shaking yeah. out. And I think if we had not hesitated, we probably would have we would have beaten the curve on a couple of things. So I think just knowing that it wasn't gonna be as much of a doomsday right away as we thought it was gonna be, like I we we held off and then we paid the price for a couple of things. I don't know if you, you disagree with that. I guess I'm the optimist. I'm like, oh, this won't be that bad. This won't be that bad. And it kind of sucked. <laughs> I so I, I thought it was it was shorter than I thought, and it was also longer than, than I thought. thought. Yeah. And different. Right. It's just weirdly different. Hopefully never again, but probably. So. <laughs> but, but probably. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because a lot of the companies that I talk to, it's literally, they're like, it's going to be a two-week thing. It's going to be a yeah. three-week thing. And, they, and they, as they are telling me this, they're like, it's funny thinking back on how minimal we thought this was going to be and then return to office was going to be may of 20 then it was july of 20 then it was december then it was open-ended and then it was like we're not going to make any decisions until we have more clarity on it um so a couple of last questions before we do q a um you're you're all kind of doing different asset classes and i think it's become very open-ended as far as kind of what you go into going forward. So what are you excited about as far as asset classes are concerned? Well, we've been doing a lot of local stuff. So I would love to, I'm excited about spreading out to new cities and improving, you know, doing sort of the Chicago style stuff in more of the Midwest cities that maybe, um, you know, if you visit some, some new high-end residential in Cleveland, it's not that cool. Okay. <laughs> Actually, time out. My friend just developed one in Cleveland. And he just got married there two weekends ago. It was very nice. It was timber frame, so pick a different city. <laughs> Cincinnati. Perfect. I hate that. Okay. Um, and, and I think Chicago, you know, it's always like New York and San Francisco move the quickest, and then LA and Chicago move the next quickest, and then you have like the Miamis and Houstons, 
but there's a lot of like midwestern cities that there's there's certainly stuff there don't get me wrong it's not like they're an absent and they're like an amish you know thing that doesn't that are still doing horse and buggies or whatever but it's just kind of bringing some of that to some of those other markets and just diversifying our portfolio a little bit and what we're doing and not just having everything in chicago so that if the mayor says something stupid we're not stuck for the next six months dealing with it I mean, I think as a like a plug for our development, like I think the film industry is going to take off in Chicago. They finally amended the legislation around the above the line, so people's salaries can be part of the tax credit, um, and it's indefinite. So it was going to cap at twenty twenty six. So people weren't going to build if suddenly in twenty twenty six the tax credit went away. Um, so with that change in legislation, I think it's going to bring a lot of productions here, and I think with productions comes a ton of jobs it also brings like a new creative class that might not be here necessarily um and i think it's going to be in the neighborhoods like you need a lot of land to build these big things and i'm hoping it can stay within the city there's specific um, tax credits like within the city because you only get the credit if the employees live within a certain radius of what you're doing so I think that's going to be great, and I, I see it being, I mean, Georgia took off, and I think with all of the political landscape right now, being in a blue state is going to put us on the map with California versus some of the other states where there's production going on. I think more developers, you can't just be specific to one asset class anymore. So yeah. it's deal by deal, what makes the most sense, because um, the highest and best use changes, you know, it, you know, over in Fulton, the office was the highest and best used, and then all of a sudden, okay, we can do Resi, but now that's 30% affordable. Well, Resi doesn't make any sense anymore. It's just back to office. So we, on one project, we designed it as office. I redesigned it as residential, and then back to office. Great. So, yeah, a lot of waste time. <laughs> all right, always an optimist. Uh, let's talk about geography. You know, Tim, you already answered it, but what geographies are you excited about besides Chicago? I think the Midwest is interesting. I think there, you know, when you look at the strength of the the schools in the Midwest, you know, the Big Ten schools, you know, I know Brian and I are partial to Illinois, but like they have one of the top computer science programs in the country. So does Wisconsin. So does Michigan. Well, a lot of those people came from the Midwest, went to school in the Midwest, and don't necessarily want to go out to Silicon Valley and have and live in a closet because that's all they can afford when they start out. And so, what opportunities? I know there's like a lot of companies and things leaving and that's the big cranes headline but there's also a ton of new companies coming out of 1871 and some of these incubators we've built over the years that are growing and that's never in the news and so yeah there's 300 marketing jobs from tyson that are going back down the fayetteville arkansas but there's three companies that are adding 100 jobs each coming out of 1871 and growing and so it's that striking that balance that i think is is going to be interesting but the midwest whether it's chicago or milwaukee or other places that are more affordable where people can actually you know if you have student loans and um you know it's really hard to live in san francisco right now you know when you're a third of your salary is going to your loans and then you're trying a third of it's going to living and you know you can barely get a you know happy meal at mcdonald's at the end of the week well it's 15 dollars now so yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean we I would agree with that on a personal outlook. My company is doing a lot of work in Miami um, because like the politics here weren't complicated enough. We're going to go and build in Miami. But we are looking at 
we have like a, a sister company essentially that's a bunch of self-storage and so we're looking at how do we merge self-storage with other uses so bringing in retail potentially doing some mixed use with residential and self-storage in the same area and so we're finding places where the regulate there's a lot of regulation around self-storage and so figuring out where the regulations make the most sense you can have like one per zip code in certain places and things like that so florida regretfully is where we're looking at a lot of stuff. <laughs> Officially, the company's only interested in the major markets, so we're LA, Chicago, Phoenix, um, Seattle, uh, Vancouver. But I think being from the Midwest, you know, as the world gets warmer, there's more hurricanes, there's more natural disasters. Yeah, we still got water. We still have water, which is, I mean, that's why I think 100 years from now, Detroit's going to look totally different yeah. because it's going to be the climate of Florida. It's going to have fresh water. Um, and it's Florida's could be a wasteland, I think. But, you know, there's my optimism again. But I just, I think there is something for the Midwest. Uh, you know, there's also the human capital in the Midwest is unlike anywhere else in the country. You know, when I lived on the East Coast, you know, people just don't work the same we do. Living on the West Coast, I struggle to get people to work, I feel like. You know, Chicago is hardworking, honest people. And I think when you actually look at, you know, company's growth and where they want to be that's you know it makes sense to be here shout out to the shy <laughs> all right questions so it's always been my job to ask the first question so let's so i uh when the pandemic hit we were doing all kinds of sessions in the end user community about how do we get people back to work safely the wellness of buildings became a big deal yeah. i didn't hear anybody talk about the design changes you might have made to make the buildings safer from a health standpoint. Any thoughts? What have you done? Anything different? We didn't. Yeah, we didn't. Yeah, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, and, it, and it's not because it's not, here's the thing is, is um, there were a lot of gimmicks that popped up and then there were a lot of gimmicks that were proven to not really, if you have, um, the great thing about Chicago and Illinois is our building code is, for ventilation rates and things like that, how much the how much the building is breathing, pulling in new air, pulling air out, and then also how much is being cleaned through filters and things like that. It's one of the highest in the nation, and so it's great for that point. Um, certainly, if we were in other markets, we would have looked into it on some of our projects. Um, but there is when you get this many people in a room, it doesn't matter if we're in a wind tunnel we're still kind of breathing the same air. Um, now, I also think we would have done it if the demand was there. If our tenants were saying, if you do these things, we'll be back in sure. and we'll pay rent again. Yeah. But they weren't doing that. It wasn't, there wasn't the push. I mean, the whole gimmick of like, okay, the elevator, you, I, you know, you don't want to touch an elevator button so you don't get COVID. I'm like, well, it was proven it doesn't live in an elevator button. So right. it's, it's just one of those yeah. things I think everyone freaked out. And then we're like, okay, so what really are what are the best practices? Yes, fresh air, you know, maybe not, you know, not everyone gets a three and a half foot desk, things like that, spacing and people it, out. You know, in all likelihood, we should all be wearing masks right now if like a CDC scientist came in here and said, and we're not because we don't like it. I, I hate talking to people through plexiglass. There is a certain amount of like trying to get back to life, um, which doesn't really answer your question at all. <laughs> um, but, I, but I think, I, I think yeah, trying to get back to, enough. you know, getting back to normal life, I think, is the, is the biggest but thing. It's also we have a level of acceptance of COVID now. Yeah. Everyone has decided, yeah. Everyone's different, and that's fine, but yeah. everyone makes a decision what they're comfortable with. Yeah. So I think 
the people who are back in the office every day without a mask on, that's where they're comfortable with. I see people in our office building still wearing masks. So I mean, we built out a, a tenant for like 50,000 square feet in, they moved in February of 21. So we did the build out during COVID and it was one of the denser plans I've ever seen. Like they, they have almost 400 people in their 50,000 square feet and they, and they just monitor it based on, they did like staggered days. They do that. Like they came back full force at certain points than when it pops up. So it really comes to more of regulating like where people are um, more than any of the infrastructure work that we thought about. It's interesting. Like, of course, you know, respect personal choice. Like if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. But what I'm seeing is the pandemic is not over technically, but we are over it, right? Yeah, like yeah. we just want to move on and live our lives and accept the fact that, you know, there's there are certain risks in today's world with doing some of that. That being said, you'll never see a hotel that shares air between rooms anymore. Like that did exist before and no one's going to do that again. I A, did not know that and yeah. be happy it's not happening anymore. It's fantastic. More questions? One sec, we can get your mic. So we all know it's important to branch out from your local area when you're doing business. Uh, but I understand with developing, it can be very, you know, who do you know kind of business. How do you guys envision branching out of your local area, not using connections, just like going to a completely new place. How would you establish yourself there? <laughs> I mean, I, Chicago, I would say is a very interesting place because it's really tough. I think to break into development here, most companies who develop here have developed over time. I mean, I remember literally my first day on the job nine years ago, myself and my boss went in to one of the alderman's office with two plans. One was as of right, and the other one we wanted to do. And he tossed, he tossed, he tossed us out and said, nothing's as of right in my ward. And, you know, that project, finally two years later, we, we broke ground, and five years later on the other one. So, I mean, it takes time to break in. Um, I also spent the first three years of my career telling them I was doing my job, and it's not my fault. Uh, and thank God they listened. Um, but I think to go to a, you know, in those aspects, you depend on the people you meet. So whether you go to a new market, is it the architect, is it the civil engineer, is it the zoning attorney, who's got the connections? And, you know, development's a small community in the city, but also kind of in the country. And you, you're not, you know, one or two connections away from someone. So I think leveraging connections, because to go in and act like you know what you're doing in a market you're not in, usually doesn't work out well. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's pretty impossible to do it without the connections. And like what we're, we're trying to finance a development that we're a, I mean, we're a six person firm. I'm the only one in Chicago. So we are like a small new developer with a new industry in Chicago with someone who was a producer in LA as our consultant, but he's new to owning studios as well. And so it was just like new, new, new. And like those conversations were were really hard and we had to pull on a lot of connections to be like, we did our due diligence. We can do that. Like it took a lot of conversations to make it progress because we couldn't do it without those connections. I think it's because of social media and stuff. It's so easy to be full of shit these days that <laughs> you being authentic and, and representing yourself well and, um, uh, putting forth good work and people having a good reputation of you, is going to just organically lead to new things. And then also you can kind of force that of, hey, introduce me to so-and-so. I saw you know so-and-so, introduce me. Well, that's a real easy conversation for that person to do when they know you have a good reputation. 
Um, and I think just authentic self and putting in the work, being honest, being legit, are like becoming more and more important as things go forward. Second vote for zoning attorneys, by the way. Oh, yeah. You know, you know the right zoning attorneys? You're in good shape. <laughs> yeah. We have time for one more? One more question. Now, Paul. Excellent job today, guys. Um, I think everything's really cyclical in real estate, right? So open office is going to become closed. It's going to become open. You look back historically at prior recessions, I think it has kind of a guide for what we need to do in the coming one. But my question is more something that isn't as cyclical as, as a mainstay in Chicago and is going to continue to be an issue, taxes. How is that impacting your development? Where's the threshold in terms of what you can actually pass through to a, a tenant or a resident versus what you eat? You know, kind of give me that in a really 10 second spiel. The big thing is the uncertainty now. We don't know. Because yeah, they're, they're going up, we don't know how much. Everyone's assuming the worst case scenario. It's really hard to get investors to invest in projects outside of Chicago because of that uncertainty. Um, and it's, all, I mean, you can pass through some of it, but it's still just going to raise someone's rents. And, and to the same thing we were talking about before, it was just like the rent is the rent and there's going to be a supply and demand. It's going to make that rent the rent. So regardless of whether the property taxes are, are high and getting passed through, like your rent's still your rent. So it's, it's certainly one of the big challenges in the city right now. I wish they would just deliver the bad news, put it down on paper. They keep like inching it here and there and it keeps creeping up and they just need to like kind of cut the knife and, okay, now we can deliver the bad news and move on from it. Well, and I think I agree that the biggest uncertainty is the biggest problem we have in the yes. city. It's no one knows what's going on. If we would just make a decision and go with it, right or wrong or indifferently, we, can, we have a set of problems yeah. to react to and find solutions to. The problem is when the problem changes every other day, you don't know what to do. Right. Um, but in terms of actual taxes, I think, you know, the more creative, you know, like Class L for us or the tax credit for the the film industry, things like that are going to be how we grow. So you're going to look at more and more people trying to leverage those. Flip side is then we're not increasing our tax base, then we have other problems. So, you know, we're going to get some development, some more jobs, and office growth, but we're not going to get necessarily all the benefits we necessarily would get otherwise. And on that positive note, let's give a hand to our panelists. <laughs> Brian Godur with Ani Group, Sheila Carroll with Make Point Ventures, and Tim Moran with Condor Partners. Thank you. Uh, I'm Max Dupofsky, and uh, check out the uh, Future Work podcast, Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs>